Let us pray. Lord, may the words of our mouth, the meditation of our hearts, be found acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Since moving to Branson, Missouri about five, six months ago, uh, life has been very interesting, especially when it comes to preaching. I feel like a circuit rider these days, going from church to church, and while I don't necessarily preach every Sunday, I preach many Sundays, and I try as hard as I can to fit into the message series. If somebody says, we need you to preach about this, or we need to have you do the third part of our series on that, and sometimes I actually choose from one of the assigned readings for that day, the Old Testament, the Epistle, or the Gospels. But there are Sundays when we actually do attend the church where we have become members. Believe it or not, we were paraded down front and asked questions and received into membership. Only two people, Nancy and I. And afterwards, when the elders congratulated us, Nancy said, this is the first church we've ever joined where you didn't throw us a potluck. <laughs> and then she said, well, you know, when you're the new pastor someplace, you always get a potluck. Now, in spite of traveling and sometimes not really having a place to preach, uh, on a Sunday, I still write a sermon every week. I've done that every week for 35 years. And even if I don't have a place to deliver it, I actually record it, which is what I'm doing today. And I put it on my message website so that people around the states and some people actually around the world can listen to it. Now, a number of weeks ago, I wrote a brand new series. And so today I... I really felt moved when I was thinking about what to talk about when I came here uh, to a place that seems like coming back home in many respects to share the first part of it. It's a discipleship series, a discipleship message where we look at how to experience what I would call the growth-centered life. In other words, it's kind of a way to, to start your journey. And simply put, I guess we put it this way, you and I are called to live and have been promised by Jesus, a something more life, a something more life. That's why when you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you never see Jesus saying, I hope you all just get by. doesn't say that. Instead, he promises his followers an abundance of everything, that we will be overflowing with our joy beyond our circumstances and love beyond reason, and that we will have peace that passes all understanding. Now, he promises that we won't just have surface-level relationships with a few casual acquaintances, but we're going to have a personal connection with brothers and sisters. That's why you all clapped before, because you had two new brothers that joined the family. You know, just as they today are brothers of Jesus Christ and sons of the Heavenly Father, they join you in this one great big happily family where we're going to follow the admonitions of Jesus to live a something more kind of life. Now, at the same time, is life kind of hard on occasion? On occasion. And Jesus never really pretended that it isn't hard sometimes. But he said you can enjoy the abundance of all that really matters every day of your life. Many of you know John chapter 10, verse 10, where Jesus said, I have come so that you may have life and have it, what? Abundantly. So really, life as a Christ follower, is a life about something more, something more. And yet every day, 
I encounter people, even some so-called Christians, whose lifestyle could better be described as something less. They're not overflowing with love and joy and peace and patience and promise. I mean, if they're overflowing with anything, and I try to stay away from their overflow, it's an overflow of fear and frustration and disappointment and conflict, and that's not the life that God wants for any of us. But it is the life that you will experience if that's the culture if that's a culture you create for yourself, a culture not based on faith and a culture not based on the clear word of God, but a culture based upon your circumstances or the turkeys you hang around with or what you feel or what everybody else is telling you. Anybody happen to listen to the convention the last couple of weeks? I didn't bother. I didn't want to be drugged into another culture that was not going to enable me to live a life of something more. I didn't want to have to hear about living a life of maybe something less. Now, there's even a popular worship song we sing that, that kind of ties into that. It has this kind of gentle, peaceful melody with tender, uplifting words. And I often think about this song whenever those moments I feel especially connected to the nearness of God. And when we sing this song, and by the way, you just sang it a little bit ago, it often creates kind of that mellow moment for the people of God. In a month or so ago, when I started writing this message series, and I was uh, meditating on the words of Psalm 42, most likely written by King David, I realized that I had kind of missed the entire point of this psalm. Now, what most of us know about this psalm is just the first verse. Psalm 42, verse 1, As the deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. Or as we sang before, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you. Now, when I read that verse or when I sing that verse, I don't know what goes through your mind. Uh, I imagine kind of a lovely pastoral scene, sweet, innocent little doe drinking water to its heart's content from some babbling little brook and maybe birds chirping in the trees and to me, this verse is kind of like a Thomas Kincaid painting. But as it turns out, it's not really the image portrayed in this psalm at all. The psalmist doesn't write these words when he was metaphorically on his hands and knees lapping out of a bubbling brook somewhere. He wrote these words at a time when there was no stream to be found. Like that deer wandering around in the desert, you know, tongue hanging out, lost surrounded by danger on the verge of dehydration, and he cries out, Oh, Lord, I'm like a deer. I'm lost. I'm alone. I'm afraid. And I am desperate with thirst. Now, while this psalm is about a deer sipping from the stream, it actually begins in the desert. That's where the psalmist was when he wrote Psalm 42. Now, if you are thirsty and you want to turn to something, a something less life, and you want to turn it into a something more life, you need to stay hydrated. I mean, today we're going to kind of journey through this psalm and discover how we can experience kind of what I call a thirst-quenching, soul-satisfying presence of God. 
So let's take a look at the very first thing you ought to think about today. There's something more life begins with just kind of a simple acknowledgement that things aren't what they could be or should be in your life. Would you agree with that? That things aren't always the way you would like them. I mean, physical thirst like this is, is your body's way of saying you're not getting enough of something and that something is water. In order to be healthy, what do you need to do? You stay hydrated, particularly on hot, humid days like you experience in, in Texas or as you experience even up in the hills of Branson, Missouri. Uh, physical thirst is a signal, kind of like that red warning light on your gas gauge when you get down to the bottom or that check engine light that suddenly flashes when you're getting low on whatever. Something's missing. Now, spiritual thirst also does the same thing. It tells you something is missing in your life. And guess what? If you deny your physical thirst long enough, you become parched, then you become dehydrated, and eventually you'll be comatose and on your way out feet first. And I'd also suggest to you that if you deny your spiritual thirst long enough, your soul will become parched, and it will be evident in the way that you live your something less life. And the sad thing is that even though your body will not let your physical thirst, uh, will not let you ignore your physical thirst forever, there are a lot of people, and maybe I'm talking to some of you this morning, maybe you know people like this who live their entire lives without ever acknowledging their spiritual thirst. They just kind of resign themselves to what I call that something less life. You ever hear anybody say, eh, this is probably just as good as it gets, so I may just as well get used to it. Or maybe you've said that. Life stinks. Life's going nowhere. I don't know what to do. Oh, woe is me. Well, God's word, and I'm here to tell you, God's word says you don't have to live that way. There's something more, so don't overlook it. Don't ignore it. Acknowledge your thirst, that you're thirsty for Lord. You're thirsty for His Word. And don't, don't entertain the thought that I can, I can do without it. Now, David is saying that, that that panting deer will ultimately find its way to water. And his thirst will be satisfied. And he's saying that what, that's what we need to do more than anything else. So we go on the psalm, verse 2, he said, I thirst for God. The living God. When can I come and appear before God? You all said that this morning, didn't you, when you woke up? I thirst for God. I cannot wait to get to church. And then you tacked on to see those babies. Or I heard Dr. Kolb was back. And, no, see, that's all fine and dandy. Love the boys. Love the boys. And I appreciated that little smattering of applause before. But I hope that you thirsted to be in the presence of God with other people who are thirsting for the same thing. Lord, when can I come back to your house and appear before you and, and see the waters of baptism? Remember that day you brought me into your family. Come to the table and receive the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And say, thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for my life. There's a second thing, and that is to make it your habit. To pour out your heart to God. This is what David said in verse 3. If you remember what Matt read to you before. I remember this as I pour out my heart to God. Now, surprisingly, many people are afraid to get honest with God. I don't know why that is. 
Instead, they just kind of play it safe and their prayers eh, kind of have polite little religious phrases so that they're very careful never to offend God. You know, I stop and think about that, and I'll admit it, I've prayed prayers like that. I just, kind of benign prayers almost. It doesn't make sense because God already knows who I am. God knows what I am. God knows what's going on in my life. He knows what's going on in my heart, even as he does with you. I mean, you can lie to other people, and there's a good chance they'll believe you. You can even lie to yourself, and ultimately you'll believe your own lies. But guess what? You cannot lie to God. If you pretend in your prayers that everything is just A-OK, hunky-dory, even when it's not, don't think you're putting one over on God. He's not fooled. Now, I can't believe I'm actually going to quote Homer Simpson here, but I am. I'm going to paraphrase something that Homer Simpson said to Bart about Bart's mother, Marge, because it kind of applies to what we say to God in prayer. This is what... I'm going to paraphrase Homer Simpson. You can't fool God on the foolingness day of your life, even if you had an electrified fooling machine. (laughs) In other words, you're not going to slide it past God. But that doesn't stop us from trying, does it? Now, here's all I'm saying. Prayer time is not a performance time. It's not a job interview. There's no pressure to put your best foot forward. The time you spend in prayer is a time when you have the liberty to be honest with God. Kind of a gut level, no holds barred, honest, one-on-one with the one who already knows everything about you. Uh, C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors in his book on prayer, said, When we pray, we must lay before him what is in us, not what ought to be in us. See, many of us are surprised sometimes when we read the prayers recorded in the book of Job. It's like, oh my gosh, I don't know if I could ever pray a prayer like that. Or read some of these so-called imprecatory psalms that David wrote, where he just shouts at God, God, kill these enemies, you smash these people. We kind of go, whoa. But see, David and Job were just being honest with God. I mean, David, when you read some of his prayers, he does not withhold anything in telling God about his feelings, his frustrations, and his fears. And we see this in verses 6 and 9 of our text today. David says, I'm deeply depressed. You ever said that to God? Oh, man, God, I'm depressed. I'm about to go over the edge. Have you forgotten me? Why must I go about in sorrow because of my enemy's oppressions? See, it's at this point, this gut-level honesty, that God is able to begin to do work in your life and turn your life into a something more life. Now, let me be clear about this. When, when I get frustrated with God, and I'll admit to that, I get frustrated with him sometimes because he just doesn't do things the way I'd like him to have them done. But whenever I get frustrated with God, I know deep in my heart who's right and who's wrong. I know who needs to change, and I know who's never going to change and <laughs> is going to sit there and wait until I actually come to my senses. But I also know that when I get honest with God, about what's in my heart, what's going on in my life, things will never, if, I, if I'm not honest, things will never change and I will never change. But like David, you need to recognize that you're a bundle of contradictions. You just need to get honest with God. That's where the journey for your something more life begins. Now, here's the third thing I want to tell you. Remember the faithfulness of God. Remember the faithfulness of God. Um, I think sometimes you get a little older, you start thinking about that. But you're never too old 
are too young to remember the faithfulness of God. You know, it's good to be brutally honest in your prayers and express everything that's in your heart, but that's not where it ought to end. It also needs to take some time to reflect on how good God has been with you. Listen to how David put it in verses 4, 6, and 7. I remember this as I pour out my heart, how I walked with many leading the festive procession to the house of God with joyful and thankful shouts. When was the last time you came to church and people were joyfully and shouting praises to God? Not unless you went to a Pentecostal church, I bet. Uh, I'm deeply depressed. Therefore, what does he say? I remember you from the land of Jordan and the peaks of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls the deep and the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your billows have swept over. He just remembers all the great times of God. And then David goes on. He says, the Lord will send his faithful love this day by song. He will be with me at night. See, friends, taking these mental journeys back to your best days helps you put the problems of today in perspective. You all must be closed in on 100 years here at First Lutheran, right? I know because we celebrated 90 when I was here. Do you remember the good old days? Some of you are pretty good at remember the good old days of church, the good old days of your life. But see, it helps you focus on what God can do, what God has done, and what God wants to do. He wants you to remember that you don't serve a one-and-done kind of God where he blesses you one day and says the next day, hey, buddy, you're on your own. We need to remember that if God did it then, God can do it again. Now, sometimes we're tempted to think that maybe the good times are over for good. Sometimes churches walk around with that kind of Attitude. Oh, boy, things are really not so good around here. Or maybe you do that in your own life. I guess I blew it. My chance with God is all over. And I guess the rest of my life is just going to be the way it is. Friends, I'm here to remind you of a couple things this morning. I want to remind you that this is not true. It's not true at all. You, every last one of you, and I know many of you by name, all the way from Wayne to the back. In this church, First Lutheran Church, you may be thirsty today, but that doesn't mean that God has given up on you. Not at all. The reason he tells us again and again to remember his great deeds of the past is not just so we feel nostalgic for the good old days, like what it was like back in when we celebrated the 90th anniversary, we celebrated our 75th or whatever. He tells us to remember the past in order to ignite our faith about what God can do in the future. Why? Because God, who did it in the past, always does it. Every day and even on into the future. I mean, there are two ways to reflect on God's faithfulness. At least I found it in my life. One way is by reading the stories in the Bible and seeing what God has done in the lives of people again and again and again. I mean, great is thy faithfulness. Don't we sing that? I mean, he did it over and over. The second way is just think about your own history. When I look back on my own life, or I think about how a couple of weeks back, Nancy and I celebrated our 52nd wedding anniversary. We think back about those 52 years. I mean, yeah, were there some tough times during those 52 years? Sure. Have there been tough times in the last 90-some years at First Lutheran? Sure. But how many times has God come through in your marriage, 
How many times has God come through in your family? How many times has God come through in your church? How many times has God answered your prayers? How many times has He met your need time after time after time after time? So you need to remind yourself every once in a while, if God did it before, God can do it again. There's a fourth thing I want to tell you. You need to tell yourself what you need to hear. Don't let everybody else tell you what you need to hear. In this psalm, David talks about the dissenters who are all around him. And believe me, these folks are all over the place. These are the people who can suck the joy out of you from a hundred paces away. I mean, these are the people I actually call joy suckers. And boy, I tell you, when I see them coming, I'm gone. Verse 10, he says, My adversaries taunt me as if crushing my bones, while all day long they say to me, Where is your God? See, the unfortunate fact of life is that there are many such voices in the world. And there are many such voices that you can even find in churches. Voices that cast doubt on God's faithfulness and voices that will cast doubt on your ability to ever receive a blessing of God again in your life. Oh, you'll never make it, they say. God's forgotten you, they'll tell you. Oh, why don't you just give up? They say, well, friends, you've got a choice. You can either listen to what those joy suckers tell you, or you can tell yourself what you need to hear. First Samuel tells us of a time when David was deeply discouraged by all that was going on in his life. His own troops were actually threatening to kill him. David is about ready to give up, and then in First Samuel chapter 30, verse 6, he said, But David encouraged himself in the Lord. See, there'll be times, and it often occurs, when your thirst is at its peak. No one around you has any interest at all in encouraging you. In fact, sometimes they're almost doing the opposite to you. Then it's up to you then to encourage yourself to find your strength in the Lord your God. Psalm 42, verses 5 and 8, David does it. He said, why am I so depressed? Why is this turmoil within me? Then he says, put your hope in God, David, for I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. The Lord will send his faithful love by day. His song will be with me in the night. A prayer to the God of my life. We see and hear him saying something similar. Psalm 103. My soul praise the Lord and all that's within me. Praise his holy name. Now, there have been many times when I've been wandering around what I'd call the desert of life feeling lost and kind of alone and afraid, desperate with thirst. And I had to kind of stop every once in a while, and I had to talk to myself. This is what I say to myself. Come on, Barry, (laughs) suck it up. Pull yourself together now. And this is a temporary situation, and and you know that God's going to get you through it. He's done it before. You can count on his faithfulness. Get your head straight. Get your heart in the right place. Put your eyes on Jesus where they actually belong, because this situation will not last forever. God's faithfulness will endure forever. And some of you know my last phrase, build a bridge and get over it already. There have been times when it felt like nobody at all was speaking the word of God into my life. And that's at that point, sometimes in your life, you need to speak the word of God into your own life. Whenever somebody around you is negative and critical and speaking doubt and despair, and you're tempted to join in their little pity party, stop. Cut it out. Move on. Tell yourself what you need to hear. 
that God is God and God is good and God did it in the past and God's going to do it in the future. Now, we all know what it's like to be thirsty, both physically and spiritually. But I want you to know you don't have to go through life thirsty all the time or even most of the time. You were not made to live in the middle of the desert. Churches were not made to live in the middle of the desert. You were made for the still waters. Remember that psalm? Psalm 23, the Lord's my shepherd, makes me lay down by still waters. He calms our hearts. You were made for quiet streams. You were made to live with a satisfied soul. Now, the question is, how do you get there? Well, David even tells us in this psalm, verse 11, put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. This whole something more life begins with placing your hope in the God who promises something more. It's important to understand that the Hebrew word here for hope doesn't imply that something will happen or maybe won't happen. And if you just kind of keep a a positive attitude, it's going to that's not what hope is. That's just wishful thinking. Hope literally in the Hebrew in the Old Testament means patiently waiting in confident expectation. Now, you could use this word, for example, to describe waiting at the darkest hour of the night for the sun to rise. You know it's going to happen eventually. You're not wishing for the sun to rise because it's going to come whether you wish or not. You're just expecting it's coming. You're just waiting for the answer. And if you will, even while you thirst, personally, collectively, as family, put your hope in God with an attitude of confident expectation that he will lead you to still waters, that he will lead you to where he wants you, that your thirst will be quenched, that your soul will be quenched, and you will begin to experience a life defined by something more. May God bless us as we constantly satisfy our souls in Jesus. Amen.